Please notice the opening paragraph on the note sheet. Sir Winston Churchill said this, There comes a special moment in everyone's life, a moment for which that person was born, that special opportunity, when he seizes it, will fulfill his mission, a mission for which he is uniquely qualified. In that moment, he finds greatness. It is his finest hour. This was going to be Nehemiah's moment. This was going to be his finest hour. Nehemiah was about to pull off the opportunity of a lifetime. Since being a leader, as Nehemiah was, since leadership is not just a one-man show, Nehemiah needed people to assist him, masses of people to assist him. This is a fantastic section of Scripture because it describes just how Nehemiah motivated people to catch his dream of rebuilding Jerusalem. It's interesting that in the preceding 90 years, two different attempts had been made to rebuild a demolished wall, and both of those attempts were unsuccessful. Nehemiah just showed up out of nowhere, it seems, and in no time at all he secured the support of the entire populace. He brought the people together, and spoiler alert, he rebuilt that wall and gates in a record 52 days, ahead of schedule and under budget, because it wasn't a government project, and because Nehemiah understood some of the basic principles of motivation. There are seven things Nehemiah did to motivate the people, those residents of Jerusalem and those that accompanied him from Persia, seven things Nehemiah did to motivate the people to assist him in rebuilding this wall. Notice, number one, Nehemiah waited for the right timing. Nehemiah waited for the right timing. Verse 11 reads, For I, so I, Nehemiah, came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Nehemiah probably took the shortest route possible, but it still took him more than two months to go from the palace at Shushan, Persia, to Jerusalem. And remember, it might have been more, longer than that, but minimum two months to journey there. And notice, Nehemiah, once he arrived, didn't make any sudden moves. He didn't start putting brick and mortar together. He arrived at Jerusalem and then did nothing of an apparent nature for three consecutive days in round number 72 hours. There are four possibilities as to what Nehemiah might have been doing during those three days. One, he was probably resting. Probably resting. Remember, Nehemiah had been crossing the desert, probably on a camel. He rode altogether between 800 and 1,000 miles. He was saddle sore. He was tired, exhausted. That meant he needed to recuperate before he could attempt this huge construction project. Two, he was probably praying. Nehemiah had demonstrated a commitment to prayer, and there's no reason he would stop now. He needed God more than ever. Three, he was continuing to put his plan together, putting his plan together. Nehemiah was reviewing his plans and making last-minute changes to those plans. Fourth, he was building curiosity among the people, building a sense of curiosity. Remember, Nehemiah uh, and this large military entourage Artaxerxes had assigned to him rode into Jerusalem. And, and this 
this military uh, entourage and Nehemiah and his men, uh, a large number, attracted the attention of all the people. The existing authorities in Jerusalem said to themselves, Who is this Nehemiah guy? What is he doing here? What are his intentions? And after Nehemiah had been there for those three days, probably most people in Jerusalem had heard about him and curiosity had taken over. But Nehemiah actually used that delay to his advantage. He used it for his psychological edge so that when he would make this construction proposal public, the people would buy into it. Nehemiah understood that the right timing was critical. Someone said that when we make decisions, and when we announce those decisions are sometimes more important than those decisions themselves. That was true in Nehemiah's case and that was the reason he waited to announce his intention. Notice four things about timing since timing is so critical. Notice a wrong action at the wrong time equals a big mess. Sometimes a big, big mess. That's a wrong action at the wrong time. Then notice, a wrong action at the right time, meaning the timing is right, the action is wrong, equals failure and unacceptance among the people. Third notice, a right action at the wrong time equals a mistake. An example of that, the right action on my part was to propose marriage to Hopi, that was the right action. The wrong time would have been after our first date. That would have been the wrong time. Actually, our first date was confusing. Um, she is a mirror image identical twin, and her mother insisted on them. Their hair was the same. They wore the same clothes, same shoes. It was all an intention to confuse. I don't think her mother understood confusion is of Satan. But anyway, they were confused. I had no idea who I was with until the end of the date. I had to ask my friend, who am I with? I don't even know. Figured it out. And finally, and said to myself, she's sweet. Oh, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll ask her out. Maybe I did, didn't I? Anyway, most people have heard the expression, strike when the iron is hot. Strike when the iron is hot. That phrase meant to act on a situation at the right time. That particular saying dates to the 14th century. It, it comes from the practice of blacksmiths that needed to strike the metal uh, when it was exactly the right temperature in order to mold it into the precise desired shape. And that's what we have to do with decisions that affect people. And that's the reason Nehemiah had waited for some time before he said anything about what he intended to do. Notice number two. Nehemiah got the facts together first. Nehemiah got the facts together first. In school we read about Paul Revere's midnight ride. This section describes Nehemiah's midnight ride. Verse 12, Nehemiah 2. Then I arose in the night... I and a few men with me, I told no one, notice, I told no one what God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. He might have rode a burrow, a donkey, a horse, we don't know. Verse 13, and I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well 
and the refuge gate, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. Verse 14, Then I went on to the fountain gate, and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. Verse 15, So I went up in the night by the valley, and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. Verse 16, And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or others who did the work. According to this passage, Nehemiah went out in the middle of the night to investigate all the damage that had been done to Jerusalem wall and gates. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar and his armies had devastated that entire region um, and nothing much was left uh, of the wall and gates. So Nehemiah brought just a handful of men with him and notice he didn't announce this. This was secretive. He didn't tell anyone else what he intended to do. Why was that? Because Nehemiah wasn't prepared to announce his decision. He was still doing his homework. He was still getting all the facts together that were necessary for this project before he announced to the people his proposal for the actual reconstruction of Jerusalem. In verses 13 and 15, notice the word viewed is used. Viewed. The middle part of verse 13 reads, and this is Nehemiah, viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. Nehemiah had taken time to view the damaged wall and different gates. He did investigation. In the original Hebrew language, that word view meant to carefully inspect something. To carefully inspect something. That word was actually a medical word used for probing a wound to examine the extent of the damage. That meant Nehemiah investigated the damage done to the wall and gates. And he paid close attention to details. Author Charles Swindoll calls details the small stuff. The small stuff. Let me mention three principles about details or the small stuff. One, someone who gives attention to details has a greater chance of succeeding. Someone that has paid attention to details, these the small stuff, has a greater chance of succeeding. The basic difference between average, being average, being mediocre, and greatness is in giving attention to details. I have been to numerous megachurches. A megachurch is defined as a church averaging more than 2,000 in attendance, and there are some churches averaging in the tens of thousands in attendance, and I've been to some of those. I've been to these mega churches, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And some were very ugly because bigger is not necessarily better. I noticed, though, that all of them, and all of them had multiple services, all of them started their services on time. Some of them even had a, a digital clock and a countdown in the worship center. All of them started on time because that is a detail that is of some consequence. To be on time all the time might seem like small stuff, but small stuff is the stuff success is made from. Second, the one who gives attention to small stuff is going to be misunderstood. Someone that 
has paid attention to details, details matter to this person, the small stuff, is sometimes going to be misunderstood. People will make statements like, he's a perfectionist, she's too particular, he's so anal, she must have OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Some people just cannot understand someone else who is interested in details and the small stuff. And so this person is misunderstood. The men that each of the waiters um, that put this room back together after the ladies' tea yesterday um, did a fantastic job. But each of the men, and some of them weren't aware of this, Notice that there are small pieces of duct tape stuck to the carpet. The chairs in this room are spaced a particular number of inches apart. And so that the chairs are arranged in the same exact order at each service, there are small pieces of duct tape on the carpet at the end of each row that act as chair placement guides. Now, Tim Crutch and I, after this carpet had been laid, and just hours after it had been laid, Tim and I spent much time on our hands and knees with a tape measure, measuring where those small pieces of tape go. Now, if we didn't do that, and if we didn't have these spots to guide us, then this room would never be set up in the same pattern twice. And I need to add this warning. Removing one of those pieces of tape from the carpet is the unpardonable sin. It is. I don't have chapter and verse, but I know it is. All right? It matters, so don't touch the tape. 1 Corinthians 14.40, commenting on the church gathering together, notice Paul said, let all things, all things, including setting up chairs in the worship center, let all things be done decently and in order. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, now one more serious, much more serious and graphic illustration of how someone's attention to detail can be misunderstood was the space shuttle Challenger. Some of us remember the Challenger. There were seven crew members aboard the Challenger. The most famous of them was a school teacher named Krista McAuliffe. Uh, She was scheduled to teach some actual live lessons from the orbiter. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. On January 28, 1986, the Challenger exploded 73 seconds after liftoff at an altitude of about 46,000 feet. Now, the crew cabin, meaning the cabin where the crew sat, itself didn't explode, but continued on to about 65,000 feet. And then strong aerodynamic forces pulled the orbiter apart. And it fell a full two minutes and 45 seconds into the Atlantic Ocean, hitting the water's surface at more than 200 miles per hour. That means the flight crew did not die immediately, as most people assume. It didn't happen. Those seven members of the flight crew survived the initial breakup of the shuttle. It is believed that the crew lost consciousness though soon after due to loss of cabin pressure and then died soon after that due to oxygen deficiency before actually hitting the earth. I just hope there was enough conscious time left for each of them to cry out, Jesus, save me. 
I, I hope that happened. We don't know. We'll know in heaven. The shuttle itself was a large aerial object. It was 122 feet long and fueled it weighed 128.6 tons. A large object. But the problem that caused the sudden and tragic termination of that flight were some small O-rings. O-rings no larger than one-fourth inch in diameter minuscule in comparison to the overall size of the shuttle and its rockets. It was small stuff, but that small stuff made a disastrous difference. A gentleman named Roger Boyce Jolie was a booster rocket engineer at the NASA contractor Morton Thiokol in Utah. He and his four engineering colleagues fought to have the flight delayed until there was warmer weather. Engineer Bolajoli and his colleagues had argued for months that those O-rings could present a serious problem in colder weather, and the Challenger flight was scheduled to be the coldest launch ever. Those men understood that cold overnight temperatures would stiffen the Challenger's rubber O-rings, and in that state the O-rings wouldn't be elastic enough to provide a secure seal, and that's exactly what happened. The O-ring seal in the shuttle's right solid fuel rocket booster weakened in the frigid temperatures and failed, causing hot gas to pour through that leak. The fuel tank itself then collapsed and tore apart, and the resulting flood of liquid oxygen created this huge fireball that ended the mission. Six months earlier, uh, this engineer, Boyce Jolie, had sent a memo to the managers at Thiokol, and he predicted, quote, a catastrophe of the highest order involving the loss of human life. He presented them that memo. Do you know what happened? No one listened to him. It was just small stuff. The hours before the launch, he said, quote, I fought like hell to stop that launch. Boyce Jolie said he and his colleagues argued persistently for hours in an attempt to convince them to procrastinate or put off the launch. But in the end, the people in charge at NASA wouldn't listen to them. NASA's George Hardy said to those engineers, quote, I am appalled by your recommendation, meaning the recommendation to wait to launch until warmer weather. Another shuttle program manager, Lawrence Molloy, ridiculed the engineers and said, my God, when do you want us to launch? Next April? Yes. Turns out that would have been a much safer date. That space shuttle Challenger incident happened because sometimes people that give attention to detail and small stuff are misunderstood. Third, the one who gives attention to small stuff is going to see his small stuff turn into big stuff. Small stuff can turn into big stuff. The small often becomes the big. Someone said, be nice to your paper boy because you might need to borrow some money from his bank someday. A classic example of this was from John 6 where Jesus fed a multitude of an estimated 15 to 20,000 people. He fed all those people, and there was even excess food 
12 baskets full remaining after. And he fed that multitude using a small child's lunch consisting of five loaves and two small fish. And the text actually reads, two small fish. That means the big can be inherent in the small. So be careful to give serious attention to details. Nehemiah sweated the small stuff. He paid attention to details. And he got the facts together before he did anything else. Notice the principle. Leaders protect their plans from premature death through doing extensive research first. I have a background as a church planner. And I understand now church planners are investing as much as 12 to 18 months doing extensive research into different geographical target areas before ever deciding on where to start the congregation. Number three, Nehemiah identified with his people. Nehemiah identified with his people, and I might add, with his people and the problem, because the problem affected the people. Notice verse 17. Then I, this is Nehemiah, said to them, so this is a public announcement. You see the distress that we are in. Notice the word we are in. How the Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us, notice the word us, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we, notice, uses the word we, may no longer be a reproach. A reproach meaning disappointment and embarrassment. As we said earlier, Nehemiah hadn't told anyone about his plans. He had all this work to do behind the scenes before he made this announcement. The Jewish people who were in Jerusalem once he got there didn't even know what he was there for. But then in verse 17, he made a public announcement and told the public about his desire, his ambition to rebuild the wall and gates. Notice that he uses the words we and us and we. Nehemiah identified himself with the people and with the situation. He included himself in discussing this problem. What would have happened if Nehemiah, this is hypothetical, what would Nehemiah have said would have happened if he had said, all right, now, I can see you people have gotten yourself into a big mess here. And I know what needs to be done to get out of this situation. You have to rebuild the wall. It has to be done. So, if you need me, I'll be in my office. No, that's, that's not what happened. That's not what Nehemiah said. In order for Nehemiah to be able to motivate the people to rebuild the wall... He had to first associate himself with the people, with that particular situation and problem. And he did. If you have, uh, if you have a bucket list, I would suggest you add an item. I would suggest you add the Eisenhower Presidential Center, located in Abilene, Kansas. Presidential Library is there. Museum is there. Uh, Commander Eisenhower's childhood home is there you can tour. It's phenomenal. It is said that General Dwight Eisenhower, Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces of Western Europe from World War II, it's said that General Eisenhower spent the last few hours before D-Day, not with the top brass, 
But he spent those last hours with the soldiers and sailors and airmen who were about to invade Europe. Even though General Eisenhower wasn't one of the some 150,000 troops that stormed the beaches of Normandy in northern France on June 6, 1944, even though he wasn't one of them, Eisenhower wanted those men to understand that he was also an integral part of that mission with them. That was important for him to be certain that they understood that. This book of Nehemiah is so relevant to our nation and to where our nation is at this moment. In verses 12 through 15, we just read how Nehemiah identified himself with the problem. Nehemiah identified himself with the people and the effect of that problem on the people. He personally noticed, investigated He himself investigated the problem of Jerusalem's devastation. He went out in the night and he carefully inspected all the devastation done to the wall and gates. He identified with the problem and the problem's effect on the people. Fast forward till now. There was an unquestionable problem on this nation's southern border. A record number of illegal crossings. Some of them were violent criminals. Some of them are potential terrorists. Numbers of them are COVID carriers. There have been recorded sexual assaults and human trafficking and illicit drugs being brought over, including fentanyl. All these problems uh, associated with this crisis at the border and this present administration, unlike Nehemiah, has never even been to the border to personally investigate that problem. Our president's never been to the border, period. Our vice president pretended to visit the border. She did not. Instead of these knuckleheads we have now in charge, we need to elect some modern Nehemiahs that can relate to this nation's problems and this nation's people. It concerns me, it concerns me that more and more politicians are nothing more than elitists and have absolutely no connection to the average person and the problems that we face. If I'm out and about, I believe an elitist is the last thing I would ever want to be accused of being. But if I'm out and about, I don't introduce myself as a pastor. If I go to the gym and I meet somebody new, I don't tell him I'm a pastor. I've been, I I still remember once I invited this, 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 this lady to our church, and this was in Kansas City. And, um, Believe it or not, uh, yogurt's kind of been a part of my life forever. And so it was at a yogurt shop, and she was the cashier. And, and so I got to know her sweet little girl and invited her to our church. And uh, didn't tell her I was a pastor, just invited her to her church. She got to church and found out I was a pastor. She was, like, shocked. She couldn't believe it. She said, you didn't tell me. I said, well, you didn't ask. <laughs> um, I've done that more than once. And uh, I don't introduce myself as a pastor, and, and that has caused some people to have the impression I'm someone completely different from who I am. I still remember the first Sunday Ray Gonzalez came. He met me in this aisle right here. He said, uh, are you the bouncer? And so that's what he, I said, I'd like to be. Uh, some people have perceived me as a member of law enforcement or someone in the military, and those people are shocked to learn that I, I'm none of those things. Some people have said to me after meeting me for the first time, uh, I would never have guessed you were a pastor. You, you just seem more like a regular person. I said, I am a regular person, and sometimes I'm an irregular person. But 
if, if for some strange reason I start giving off this ministerial arrogance and aloofness, then please tell me to knock it off. That's not what I want to be. Nehemiah related to his people. Don't forget this principle. The best ideas are not yours or mine, but they're ours. Because we're in this thing together. Statement four. Nehemiah emphasized the seriousness of this problem. The seriousness of this problem. See, some people tend to understate the seriousness of some situations. I heard about a younger couple that were into backpacking and you know, hiking and all of that and all things natural. So together, these two, mom and dad, and five-year-old son were vacationing on the East Coast and happened to see a sign announcing, quote, naturalist colony. And then an arrow pointing in the direction of that place. Since they perceived themselves as serious naturalists, um, they thought it might be interesting to check it out. So the husband turned his car down the country road and after for driving for like some five minutes, all of a sudden, coming at them, there were four naked people on bicycles. It turned out that this naturalist colony was actually a nudist colony. So the husband slammed on the brakes, attempted to turn around and drive out of the area, but in the process of negotiating his car in the opposite direction, those naked cyclists passed them and just waved. This five-year-old in the back seat said, Mom, Dad, did you see those people? They weren't wearing helmets. I think the child understated the problem. <laughs> Nehemiah didn't minimize the problem. He didn't underestimate or understate the problem. Instead, notice the emotional word pictures that he used in describing the situation at Jerusalem. In verse 17, he uses the words distress, waste, and reproach. Remember, reproach is an embarrassment. The reason Nehemiah dramatized this situation in using those words was because the people at Jerusalem had become apathetic about this problem. It just, on the surface, didn't seem to matter as much to them anymore. That's the reason Nehemiah was using this sort of graphic language in an attempt to create a sense of discontentment. Understand that serious change, genuine Permanent, serious change never happens until we are discontent. As long as we're content, we aren't going to change. Some people want the status quo. The status quo, which is, as someone said, probably Latin for the mess we're in. Some people are fine with that. Nehemiah created in these people, though, a certain discontent for what had happened to this protective wall and gates around Jerusalem. Before we moved here, and some of the people in this room were here uh, when we arrived, this was a struggling congregation. Um, this was a congregation on life support. In fact, um, I remember telling the search committee, I said, you know, I've been to uh, two dead churches in my lifetime, and I believe this this is both of them. Um, I, I told them that. They didn't think it was that funny, but I told them that. I remember telling them, if you always do 
what you've always done, then you're always going to get what you've always got. And what you've got is unacceptable to God and to me. I was honest. Um, and over a period of time, the entire search team, uh, minus a couple disgruntleds, uh, and this congregation at that time, minus some exodus of some disgruntles, agreed and brought us here. Those changes that have affected our progress, that have occurred since then, are the direct result of a certain sense of congregational discontentment. There were a core of people here who said, we don't like what we have. We don't want this. We want change. We want something better. And that's because discontentment precedes positive change. Number five, Nehemiah asked for a specific response. Nehemiah asked for a specific response. Notice the ending of verse 17. Nehemiah said to the people, Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem. He invited them to join him in this construction project. Notice Nehemiah called for immediate action. He just told the people how bad the situation was. And now he was encouraging them to do something about it. Just as Nehemiah did, we should never issue a spiritual challenge to someone and or someones apart from asking that someone or someones for a specific response. For instance, if I present the gospel to someone, then after I'm finished, I encourage them to sign on the dotted line for Jesus. Now understand something. There's no pressure. There's no intimidation. There's no arm twisting. There's no coercion. None of that is acceptable to God. Salvation is of the Lord. I'm just an instrument to encourage someone to come to Him. So I just extend to them a chance to receive Jesus. Now, some people disagree. And some people don't believe we are responsible to urge someone to receive Christ. And there's this attitude, just give them the gospel and then let God do the rest. If that's the case, then after Paul witnessed to Agrippa, why did Agrippa tell Paul at Acts 26, verse 28, quote, You almost, Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. That Greek word persuade is, that is translated as persuade means to convince, to win some over to, someone over to his side. Paul was persuasive in his preaching. He was persuasive in presenting the gospel to someone. And we should also be persuasive. Revelation 22, verse 17. And the Spirit, this is the Holy Spirit, and the bride, the bride uh, is the church. The church is, in a figurative sense, a building, spiritual building, brotherhood, spiritual brotherhood, a body, spiritual body, and a spiritual bride. So the Holy Spirit and the church say, come. This word come is a call to personal action. In particular, come is an invitation to come to salvation in Jesus Christ. Come and let him who hears say come, and let him who thirst come. The scriptures themselves urge men to respond to Christ. That's the reason that after explaining the gospel to someone, I, I urge that person, I encourage them to receive Jesus. Even if I suspect the response is probably going to be negative. I still invite them to receive Christ. I want to give them at least an opportunity to say yes. 
I am not ashamed to admit that I asked people for a response to a spiritual challenge, just as Nehemiah did. And in that case, that spiritual challenge he issued was to join him in rebuilding Jerusalem. I want us to see the particular motivational technique Nehemiah used. There are two basic forms of motivation. Probably most of us have heard of them. There is extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation. Now, first, there is extrinsic motivation. The classic cartoon that pictures extrinsic motivation is a mule or donkey burrow pulling a wagon or a cart. Uh, in this case, there is a long stick attached to the cart that runs over his neck and tied up uh, to the end of that stick is a big carrot hanging down about a foot in front of his nose. See? And as long as he's moving toward the carrot, he wants the carrot. As long as he's moving toward the carrot, then he will continue to pull the cart. He is being extrinsively motivated. We use extrinsic motivation on our children all the time. Some children's bedroom resembles the aftermath of a nuclear holocaust. So sometimes a positive form of extrinsic motivation from a parent is helpful. Something such as, Susie, clean up your room. If you clean up your room, then we can go shopping. Or in a more negative form of extrinsic motivation could be, Johnny, clean up your room. And if you don't clean up the room, then I promise you won't be able to sit down for a month. That's another form of extrinsic motivation. Extrinsic motivation can be an effective means of motivating even as adolescents age. Some parents tell their junior hire, make straight A's this semester, and we'll take you to Disneyland. Now, that's an expensive proposition, but it might work. Then some insurance companies give eligible high school teenagers a good student discount on car insurance. In college, the academic administration uses scholarships and the dean's list to motivate students to make good grades. Some companies give exotic vacations to their best salesmen. Some professional ball players have performance-based incentives written into their contracts. And only God knows how many teenage or even adult men have attended a church service or an evangelistic crusade and received Jesus because a certain attractive female invited them. I know them. I've met them. That's another instance of extrinsic spiritual motivation. Intrinsic motivation, though, is more internal in nature. Now, some form of extrinsic motivation and encouragement is almost essential in motivating children because immature children need more extrinsic incentives in order to be motivated. But the older and more mature that someone becomes, then the lesser the need for extrinsic motivation because this person is now more motivated more intrinsically. As a general rule, the more mature someone is, the more he or she is motivated intrinsically rather than extrinsically. For example, in one of our Sunday school classes, a first grader in that class. Sometimes that child needs an extrinsic motivation stimulus in order to convince him to sit still and behave and listen. That's necessary. I just read, though, this bothered me. This was a TikTok video. There's a high school teacher, English teacher, from Virginia named Josh Thompson, who made a video where he argues that requiring students to sit still in class and behave and listen to the teacher is a form of white supremacy. 
What is wrong with people? The public school system, the educational system has gone woke and understand something. Woke is a joke. That's a joke. Sitting still in class, behaving in class, listening to the teacher is just part and partial and essential to the learning process. There is no racial component to that. It's foolishness. So we would give a quiet seat prize to the child in the class that is best behaved or listens best to the lesson and participates and responds to the teacher's questions. A a quiet seat prize, we would call them. It could be something as simple as receiving a cookie, like an oatmeal raisin cookie, or I'm into now oatmeal cranberry cookies. Um, Rene Dilpretti makes me those, and they're great. Anyway, offering a prize is age-appropriate for a child, but someone that is 36 or 52 or 61 and sitting in a church service should be motivated intrinsically to sit still and listen. He shouldn't have to be rewarded. He should sit still and listen because he has an internal want and desire to learn. That is an example of the basic difference between extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation. Now I want us to notice Nehemiah motivated his people intrinsically, not so much extrinsically. He didn't offer them some tangible material incentive. He didn't advertise an all-expense paid vacation for two to the Dead Sea Resort for the one who was most efficient at a proficient at mixing mortar. He didn't offer a gift certificate at the Jerusalem Mall to the person who made the most brick. He could have done that. And it wouldn't have been wrong had he done that. But he chose not to do that. Instead, Nehemiah said to the people, people, we are in serious trouble here. Jerusalem is an absolute wasteland. The gates have been burned to the ground. The wall has been torn down. The wall's in pieces. We cannot reestablish ourselves, reestablish our homes in Jerusalem until we correct the situation. Remember, according to verse 14, the area in and around the fountain gate was in such a mess, he couldn't even get through that area on his burrow or donkey or horse. So Nehemiah said, people, this is an absolute embarrassment. We are an embarrassment. Jerusalem has become a disgrace both to ourselves and to God. This place has got to be put back together. That was intrinsic motivation. Nehemiah appealed to the internal pride ancient Jewish people had for their holy city, Jerusalem. And it was effective. Charles Swindoll said Nehemiah was able to scratch them where they itched deep down on the inside. There aren't a lot of people who can do that do what Nehemiah did, but those who can make incredible leaders. Dr. Elmer Towns co-founded Liberty University. He and Dr. Jerry Falwell founded that school in 1971. I happen to know the first graduate of Liberty University. Um, And I know I've sent many kids there and and no faculty there. In fact, a former worship leader we had in California who was the head of the entire music department there. But... uh, Dr. Towns is 89. He's authored 170 books. He has received six honorary degrees. He has published more than 2,000 academic articles. He has given lectures and conducted seminars in 111 different colleges and seminaries. And I was privileged to sit in one of those seminars where I was able to speak to Dr. Towns afterwards. And Dr. Towns had shared in that seminar that in his estimation, the greatest leader in the 20th century was Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. 
And, and I thought about all the other incredible leaders from that past century. I mentioned Eisenhower. There's Reagan. There's so many. And I concluded, though, that Dr. Towns was probably correct. No one else motivated more people to a singular cultural cause than did Dr. King. The civil rights cause Dr. King preached and promoted grabbed people from all racial and ethnic backgrounds and stirred them up against discrimination and bias and prejudice and racism and injustice and his influence is still being felt. He is the only non-president to have a national holiday in his name. Notice the principle. Leaders both see both the real and the ideal. Leaders see what is and what are able to also see what could be. Leaders see both the real and the ideal, what is and what could be. That was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and that was Nehemiah. Number six, Nehemiah encouraged the people with a personal testimony. Nehemiah encouraged the people with a personal testimony. Verse 18, And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So Nehemiah reiterated to the people at Jerusalem in the form of a personal testimonial the specifics of how God had orchestrated his being given permission to migrate from Persia to Jerusalem and rebuild this wall and gates. He told them how it happened. Personal testimonies describing God's actions are motivating to those that hear them. That's one reason I believe personal salvation testimonies are so important. It's frustrating. I've seen so many Christians struggle to tell me the specifics of his or her salvation. And that's most unfortunate. We should be able to relate to someone our salvation experience. Revelation 12, verse 11. And they, these are Christians alive on earth during the prophetic tribulation period. The tribulation comes immediately after the rapture. And they, these tribulation saints, overcame him, Satan. How? By the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, and by the word of their testimony. The reason in our Essentials to Discipleship course we have an entire lesson on developing our personal salvation testimonies and it is required of each one in that course to do that. The reason is because sometimes it is the recounting of someone's personal salvation experience that the Holy Spirit can then use that to ultimately convince someone to receive Jesus Christ. Verse 18 continues, So they said, let us rise up and build. Let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. So Nehemiah told the people how God had changed Artaxerxes' mind. What Artaxerxes had said to him. So that Artaxerxes even authorized and financed this project. And then after sharing that, Nehemiah challenged the people to rebuild Jerusalem. And the people all agreed. The response was unanimous, positive. In unison, the people said to Nehemiah, All right, let us rise up and build. Meaning, Nehemiah, let's go for it. Nehemiah, let's do this. The reason Nehemiah testified as to what God had been doing in putting this entire project together was because he understood people primarily follow people. I agree, sometimes people follow programs and 
people follow denominations and people follow parachurch ministries and people follow political parties, but primarily people follow people. And the people that people follow are called leaders. And there's no question that Nehemiah was an effective leader. There are two more interesting statements mentioned in this verse. The first statement and the last statement. Notice, Nehemiah said, The hand of my God, which has been good upon me. And then the last statement, he said, And they, meaning the residents of Jerusalem, and those that joined him from Persia, set their hands to this good work. If we put these two statements together, then we get this principle. God's hand is sometimes at work through human hands. God's hand is sometimes at work through human hands. People, God sometimes chooses, and this is a sovereign prerogative on His part, God chooses to limit Himself to using human beings. God could do all He wishes to do apart from humans, but He often chooses not to do that. God uses us. Number seven, Nehemiah answered his opposition with confidence. With confidence. Notice 1 Corinthians 16, 9. Paul said, For a great and effective door has been opened to me. This door represented significant spiritual opportunities that would be extended to Paul. And there are many adversaries. Those adversaries were the opposition. Understand something, people. Opportunities don't exist without some degree of potential opposition. Opportunities don't exist without some degree of potential opposition. And Nehemiah's initial opposition came from these three antagonistic men we mentioned last time, Sambalad, Tobiah, and Geshem. Notice verse 19. But when Sambalad the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshub the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us. Despise means to scoff, jeer, sneer, and scorn. And said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? Nehemiah's opposition came in two forms. Notice. The first form of opposition came in the form of laughter and ridicule. Notice Nehemiah said they laughed at us and despised us. These three men belittled Nehemiah's attempt to rebuild the wall and basically told him he was a fool and out of his mind to even attempt this project. The second form of opposition was to accuse Nehemiah of rebelling against the team, the king. Notice the phrase, will you rebel against the king? Why did they say that? Because much earlier Ezra the scribe had tried to rebuild the wall. And that particular accusation had been used against him before to stop construction. At that time, the opposition said that if the people were permitted to rebuild the wall, then the Jewish people would feel a more sense of independence and would stop paying taxes to the media Persian Empire. That wasn't a real thing. That was just a made-up thing. That was just an urban legend because it couldn't have happened. But the king was convinced it could happen and... So he issued a decree that stopped Ezra's construction project. So these ancient predecessors to the three stooges, named Sambalad, Tobiah, and Geshep, remember that incident from Ezra, and that 
in their minds, a similar technique just might be effective one more time. So these three men accuse Nehemiah of insubordination and rebellion against Artaxerxes. Now, after hearing this accusation, I am certain that at that juncture, Nehemiah probably pulled out from his robe those permission papers that he had just received from the king himself, and he shoved them in the faces of those cantankerous men and say, See these? See these? Read these. I have Artaxerxes' full authorization to do this. And here it is. Here's the documentation. Nehemiah wasn't contentious. He wasn't argumentative. But he did stand up to them. And he gave them the facts. Notice verse 20. So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will prosper us. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. And you, Sembalid, Tobiah and Geshem, you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Nehemiah told them that God himself would use them to see that this construction project succeeded. And then he told these critics that they had no right to even be in Jerusalem. Nehemiah's response boosted morale in Jerusalem because he was probably the first and only person to ever stand up and tell these men off. Nehemiah wasn't just some pushover. He was confident. He was courageous. He was determined, even in the face of fierce opposition. Rebuilding the wall and gates around Jerusalem represented what some would call a BHAG. B-H-A-G. BHAG is an acronym first found in a 1994 book called Built to Last. BHAG means a big, hairy, audacious goal. Audacious meaning a willingness to assume a bold risk. And rebuilding the Jerusalem wall and gates represented a big, bold risk. BHAG is something someone, some might perceive to be something impossible. A BHAG is something some might perceive to be pure craziness. But as Albert Einstein said, only those who attempt the absurd can achieve the impossible. And that was Nehemiah. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for Nehemiah, his example of leadership, his example of how to motivate people to do what needs to be done. We need more Nehemiahs in the church, in society, in government. We need more men and women who dare to be what you have called them to be and do what you have called them to do. I pray that you would give us more of them. Maybe even in this room there are some potential Nehemiahs. God, thank you again for your word, for your lesson to us. I pray you'll use it to make a difference in each of us. And I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.